Over the past year, we've leveraged Vistaprint services to help us on our mission to inspire entrepreneurs of color. They've helped us print stickers, t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, and even snapback hats. Yes, they print just about everything. My point is, they print a lot more than just business cards. So as you look for ways to help your small business stand out, think Vistaprint. The printabilities are endless at vistaprint.com. The beginning of it was entirely self-financed. My savings from being a nuclear engineer, working in tech, working in banking, I mean, all told, over the course of like 12 to 18 months, like over $100,000. So you really believed in this? I grew to learn that this business was gonna need at minimum that, and I actually have grown to learn since that that is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. To building a, <laughs> what, a, what your aspiration. a brand, yeah. And it wasn't all at once, and that maybe made it a little bit easier, or maybe a little more sticker shock when I looked at the final tab, and I was like, oh my God, I've actually spent this much. But the way I think about it was, it wasn't all at once, and so it was trying to figure out, you know, with 10K, what can I prove out? Yes. Like, and if I can prove that out, cool, we'll put a bit more money right. in and go. And that's why it was over the course of like a year to 18 months, yeah. was because like at each step of the process, I was kind of evaluating, okay, where does it make most sense to, to invest more money? Right, to get that return. Yeah. yeah. I'm Bima, and on today's show, we have Sandro Rocco, creator of Sanzo Sparkling Water. Queens-born, Jersey-raised to Filipino parents, Sandro's family was one of the first Asian families in a community that was made of Italian and Irish families. He grew up loving food and was exposed to a good number of diverse communities. In 2005, he attended Villanova, where he learned that not all of his peers grew up like him, and he learned that other people's worlds aren't as colorful. But seeing the lack of representation, made him competitive to take up space because he wanted to make his parents proud and honor their sacrifices. Initially an engineering major, he decided it wasn't a right fit and dabbled in a series of different careers after college, including investment banking, retail. He even channeled Homer Simpson working at a nuclear power plant where his job was to make sure nothing went wrong. During these jobs, Sandro found a niche for entrepreneurship. Now he was starting to notice restaurants were shifting from your expected French and Italian cuisines to Filipino food, Chinese food, and South Asian food. He started to notice that salsa brands weren't even making the flavors to complement these foods. And while he saw an opportunity, he didn't really know how to make that happen. In our conversation ahead, he talks about how life in Jersey influenced his perspective. I spent all of like a day in, in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> what was, why did your family decide to, to move so quickly? Yeah, um, so my parents immigrated from the Philippines here in the mid 80s with my two older brothers already yeah. in tow. And so uh, once they knew they were having me, it was like, don't know that we want to raise three mm -hmm. boys um, you know, in the city. Yeah. The area of New Jersey that we moved to was like developing. Mm -hmm. um, so it still wasn't really super built out yet, but yeah. there was just, more land for us to roam around in. Um, it was a little bit of like, 
I don't know, the way they described it to me was a little bit of like a frontier where, you know, they were among the first um, Asian and certainly among the first oh, Filipino families, but they just felt like overall they could hmm. raise us in a way that they wanted to, you know, right. outside, away, outside away the from kind of the, the busy situation that was happening there. So as your family being kind of one of the few and first Asian families in that community, what else was the dynamic of the community? Yeah, I mean, the town itself was heavily Irish-American, Polish-American, and Italian-American. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's interesting. You know, I feel like a lot of my own friends who started, you know, businesses in our space will talk about how, like, their home cooking or their, like, comfort yeah. food was, you know, something that's, like, I don't know, I'm Filipino, so maybe it was, like, an adobo or, mm-hmm. um, you know, sinigang or, like, a particular Filipino dish. Right, right. For me, it was actually chicken parm and linguine because <laughs> um, our hometown had, like, and I think my parents and I counted it at one point during the pandemic. There's like 22 or 25 like separate Italian American joints, either selling pizza or pasta yeah. or whatever. Just and in the so neighborhood. Just in that neighborhood. And it's not like, it, it, it's certainly not a small town, mm-hmm. but it's not like a gigantic town that can usually accommodate all oh, of that. But. And so that was actually kind of my upbringing. Like, yes, mm-hmm. we definitely ate Filipino food, yeah. um, family parties, cooked mm-hmm. it at home. But the way my parents taught me about culture and I guess how to be like, American was by eating the foods that were around us. <laughs> of the community. Of the community. And we also, fortunately, you know, like the, the town next over had a huge Portuguese population, mm-hmm. town the other way, huge Puerto Rican and Dominican population. Yeah. And then 15 minutes away, a big town called Edison, which is like huge for various Asian American communities. So like growing up, I mean, there's photos of me, at least, I don't know if they're public, but um, <laughs> actually some of them are. I was like a pretty rotund pretty mm-hmm. obese child. Like I definitely, from an You're early like, I'm age, eating all this food. I, I loved eating early. And so it was just awesome to have that kind of exposure to like that diversity of food and cuisines. Did you know that that was um, an unusual experience, like compared to maybe what you would end up finding like from colleagues and classmates? Like, cause I, you know, personally, I didn't grow up with that many different cultures sure. around, like have, being able to have that interaction with that many different cultures, you know, growing up in the South, like yep. you had, basically a worldview. <laughs> no, I don't think I realized it, you know, going through it. Yeah, it's so funny, like my high school friends, you know, are also like super diverse. Where it hit for me, honestly, a bit more was when I went to college. <laughs> so I went to Villanova University in Pennsylvania. So that was like 2005? That's right. Okay. Yeah, and like phenomenal school and, you know, most of, like I say, a lot of my best friends today are still from there. But that definitely was the first time that I was awoken up to like, hmm, okay. Not a lot of people had my exact <laughs> upbringing yeah, at the time, and I think it's gotten a lot better since, but at the time, wasn't very diverse. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't even a matter of like, oh, all the Asians are together. It's all the people of color are, to- are, to- are together, <laughs> or at least like know who each other are yeah. and, and whatnot. That also taught me a lot though, mm-hmm. I, I gotta say. And I, and I think especially you know in the business that I'm in now, yeah. like navigating a world that still has that as the mm-hmm. default you know, power structure. Right. You know, there's a lot of conversations that I have with other entrepreneurs about like, how do we make it in these kinds of power structures? We obviously are, it's changing and it's, it's changing, evolving, right. but it's still not it fully there. You still, still gotta navigate long, it. Long way to go. And it, it just, you know, it brings up different emotion, brings up different feelings that, you know, you have to imagine your other colleagues, you know, that aren't folks of color, definitely aren't having those same things. Going back to that Villanova period, how did you respond or react to realizing, oh, this is vastly different from the representation that I experienced in my community growing up? Yeah, I think that's actually where a little bit of my 
I want to call it competitiveness, mm -hmm. like stars actually show a bit. I mean, I played some sports growing up. Like every Filipino, I at least shot a basketball. <laughs> um, Were you any good? I played through freshman year. And then honestly, I think I could have made the JV team. I, just, <laughs> I, lost, I lost interest though, to be completely honest with you. And maybe I would have gotten cut. That's fair. <laughs> um, that's fair. But um, what I saw was, ooh, okay, I'm at an interesting like intersection here where mm -hmm. not at all like the dominant, you know, like representation here, but like I kind of took it as a, I now want to beat everyone or I want to get to the top. Yep. And it, it, interestingly for me, it wasn't even about academics. Mm -hmm. um, in many ways, academics kind of took, took, took a back seat. But where I really started thriving was in a bunch of uh, student organizations. Mm. Um, specifically, I became the editor-in-chief of our college newspaper oh, wow. as, as a sophomore. So I love like storytelling. Yep. I love what you do. I love like, Thank you. I love this industry of telling folks' stories. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I kind of saw it as, okay, if this is a group, if this is like where the power structure is, mm -hmm. I'm going to penetrate it and yep. get to the top. And mm. I was pretty like, yeah, I'll say I was pretty competitive about it. I, <laughs> I, I worked hard to like, you know, foster connections. Where'd that come from? Where's that drive come from, from a competitive sense? Is that something that you observe from your parents or your community? Where does that come from? Oh, that's a great question. It's, it's so funny. I almost feel like I'm in therapy because I, I just, I just, I just, I just started therapy two months ago, and this is one of the biggest things that we're that we're like diving into is like, oh why do I have this kind of true life? I'm in the same thing. I, I'm like, I'm asking like the same questions. Like, why, why do I have to approach it so intensely? Like, can I dial it back? I know, right? Honestly, like the biggest thing that I saw was I have vivid memories of my childhood and how much my parents sacrificed mm. to give my brothers and me the life that, you know, we could, we could basically choose what, what we want what, to what do we want versus to do. having to be somewhere, do something for 40 years, same thing. Exactly. Like I feel fortunate. It's so funny. Like one of my favorite comedians, like it is for a lot of Filipinos is, is Joe Coy. Mm. And he talks about how like a lot of Filipinos are kind of like pushed into being a nurse or you know, what have you. My parents weren't that. Mm. And like, I felt like they went the extra mile, you know, to provide a living for my brothers and me so that we could choose to do what we wanted. And, you know, I mean, part of it maybe is like a, a projection of myself that like, I'm not sure that I would be so generous. I mean, I think about my parents coming, you know, literally to the other side of the world mm -hmm. to give a, a living for me and my brothers that was way better than what was happening in the Philippines at that, at that right. time. And that was like wartime when they were there. Yeah, it was like yeah. under martial law. Yeah. And so, I think that's what's been in my head is like, I want to make it worth it for them. And they've never put that on. Never me. put that on that, but it's just how you translated right. their sacrifice. Right. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, I'm still sorting through it because still I think, sorting. especially now with this business, it ultimately, as you might imagine, like, and I'm sure with yours as well, it's like, it's a personal thing that there's an emotional yeah, and cultural aspect to it, sure. but it's also like, these are flavors, these are, this is a brand that mm -hmm. I'm trying to represent both like the Filipino American community well, but also like Asian American, then like there ends up being more of a tie here than, <laughs> I don't know, if I were to start a, an app or right, some right. kind of regular website. It feels a website. bit more like, you know, you can segment out the emotion of it, Yep. right? It does have a very personal connection to it. Yep. When you were in school though, you initially were focused on engineering. You had majored in engineering, is, yeah. that, is that right? My degree was in chemical engineering. Chemical engineering. What did you want to do with that? So the original thought was, I you know, talk about the competitiveness. I was just like, I wanted to cure cancer. So my original thought was, so I was pretty good in my maths and sciences, had amazing teachers in high school. And the goal was, hey, like, I'd love to get into like, 
manufacturing a, a world-changing drug. Oh um, and one of my internships for the summer was working not directly at one of the big pharma companies, but they did a lot of, there's a, a, a consulting firm that did a lot of work for big pharma mm-hmm. and absolutely hated it. Um, like there are certain parts of it that I got <laughs> that was like interesting from an intellectual perspective, yeah. but like it's the value of, of internships is you actually You learn, can learn what you like and what you don't like. Yeah. And I think that goes so unsaid. Part of it's like get work experience, but no, a part of it is also like having the ability to know ahead of time what you like and what you don't like yep. so that, you know, as you get older, you don't have to start doing it then like you kind of already know. Absolutely. Right. Unfortunately, I feel like I took that tactic for the next like 10 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you would try a couple of different things, right? Yeah. I mean, so like coming out of college, I worked in, in the nuclear power industry. So I was, a, I was working at a nuclear power plant for, yeah. for three years in the... What were you doing there? We were the group that was in charge of making sure that there were systems in place so that bad things didn't happen. So there's one couple different groups. So like one of the big groups was, okay, we're actually generating the power and how do we get this power onto, you know, onto the grid? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was our group, which was, how do we make sure nothing goes wrong in that process? <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a lot of pressure. Fortunately, and I'll say this, like, you know, I didn't think it was going to be a whole conversation on nuclear, but like, <laughs> or on energy, but like, you know, it's actually, I think, a testament to the safety of the industry. It actually, why I left it was I wasn't interested enough or I wasn't, mm. um, I didn't feel challenged enough yeah. in it. It wasn't, the good thing was the power plant is actually very well very run. Well, yeah. um, and a lot of things are going very well that hmm. some days, I wouldn't say boring, but yeah. it actually fortunately wasn't that eventful. Bet, yeah. <laughs> I got you. You try that out. That didn't work. Investment banking. That wasn't it. Yep. Bomb fell, which is a retail startup. It well, yeah. Unfortunately, retail. got sunsetted October of I think 2020 or 2021. Mm. But yeah, uh, an apparel startup basically is a, at a time when uh, in the late 2010s there was a lot of putting stuff in a box and yep. sending it out. Yep. We had a good run. Had a good run. Learned a ton. What was the thing that stuck out the most to you in that experience? A couple things. So one of which, well, I think probably the biggest thing was this is also at a time where companies were being started and scaled that there are now podcasts, Netflix series, Hulu series, and Apple TV series about. I can tell you one of which I've participated in every single version (laughs) of their story, which is WeWork. WeWork, Yes, yeah, right. And so like, as those stories were happening, I felt very, uh, I still feel a high level of gratitude because our culture was not that. Our three founders were, I think, the most intentional, nurturing, caring founders that I could have ever imagined working for. In many ways, they changed how I thought about life because wow. they, I felt like they gave me an environment where I could do valuable work, build, mm-hmm. but be nurtured throughout it, not right. have these kind of toxic work environments mm-hmm. that a lot of folks, you know, unfortunately are in. Yeah, are in or that you read about. So that still permeates how I think about building the brand and the company that we're trying to build. And the second one, which is a bit more of like a more pure business learning was the value of going after big markets Hmm. for as great as we were and as i would put them on par with literally any other founding team that's ipo'd or sold their business for billions of dollars like i would literally put them there they certainly have the credentials but also just like the way that they thought about the business i'd put them on that level but ultimately it came down to like the actual addressable market for selling Hmm. men clothing through a like a subscription box service and we did you know i think everything that we possibly could but 
it's easier if you have a product that sticks with a bigger market. You have uh, more margin for error. Right. Versus it being so niche and like right. if that funnel cuts off, then and that's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. Or you have to at like mid stage, you know, ten plus million dollars, like literally pivot the business into something else, which is like it's tough to do at a startup because hard. you're already already, already under you're already stretched. Right. <laughs> right. 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 These different experiences are happening. You're working. When do you get this entrepreneurial bug, right? Because at this point, you're still very much more so thinking corporate, you know, career path sure. type of thing. When do you start to take a look across, you know, the bridge per se? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a big one for me was, I mean, I, I actually considered Bombfeld that first foray. Um, okay. I was one of the first seven to 10 people there. Yeah, my, basically are entrepreneurs together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I was actually trying to start my own version of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that they had existed. So um, while I was in banking, the, fortunately my group, like what we did on the on the trading floor, you know, you're in early, but you're also out at a certain time every day. It's not like these like mergers and acquisitions folks mm -hmm. who are just like chained to the desk until 5 a.m. every night. Yeah. Um, we actually were let out. Um, <laughs> And in that time, I actually was spending my evenings literally going to stores, buying clothes for friends and showing up at their doorstep and being like, hey, you know, they basically filled out a little bit of a questionnaire, told me their preferences. I would show up to their door with like a suitcase or a duffel bag. Right. They would take what they wanted. And then like I'd show them the receipt and I'm like, yo, if you want this, like Venmo me this and then you know maybe added a little bit of like a you know like a finder's fee and then go from there yeah. so that definitely started me down this path of like oh wow like this is unlocking mm. and like flexing like completely different muscles than i'd been used to and like kind of got addicted to that idea of building but like I was maybe like four months in, mm -hmm. and then I found Bombfell, and I, you know, I tried the service out, and I was like, oh wow, you guys have figured out, <laughs> you you figured out a, lot, a, lot, a lot more things there, mm -hmm. and I think I'd be better served because I was coming to a point where I was like, oof, I'm gonna have to make some pretty big money decisions mm. if I want to go do this. Yeah, getting in the world of physical goods, like the inventory requirements are yeah. pretty real, significant, quickly. Yeah, and so fortunately they had a role open, applied for it. Throughout the course of the conversation, it was like, wow, okay, you guys are actually like several steps ahead and I could stand to learn like ah. your process, how you build, how you even think about building. Like I think even that perspective is, is something that oh, it's is key. And a very lot of, valuable. And a lot of folks coming either like out of college or dropouts, like I'm like very, I'm so impressed by folks who don't have startup experience mm -hmm. and who can still build massive empires because it's like, I couldn't, like I needed that level of experience, yeah. I think to kind of give me the right but it's also Mindset. shows like a maturity, right? Like you're clear on like, this is what I know and this is what I don't know. And like yeah. to be able to sit in that moment and say, hmm, I could actually, maybe I need to go in here, learn a ton, and then maybe we can continue this journey if I decide to. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So you start to get that bug there, right? Yes. And you would kind of start to act on that maybe around 2018. That's right. So what inspired the act? I mean, a couple of things are happening. One, that was... I guess like helpful to the creative process um, was that, you know, Bombfell things were starting to go a bit sideways and to a degree down. And so that gave me a bit more bandwidth to, to, <laughs> to, more time. <laughs> to, to, to think about other things. I will say at the time also, I was, you know, that was like a four-ish year, yeah, four-year period. I was feeling a little burnt out. I actually debated at one point 
taking a bit of a, a sabbatical. Like I, oh, wow. I, I literally had mapped out doing like a long-term Airbnb <laughs> in Thailand and yeah. just like clear, clearing myself and figuring out the next step. And it was fortunate at that time. And I wouldn't say it was like an all in like one aha moment, but over the course of several months, you know, just started, I guess, taking notice of what was happening in broader culture, which for me, at least like through the lens of the world that I was seeing was a film in Crazy Rich Asians that became the number mm-hmm. one film at the box office. Yeah. Not just number one Asian American film, mm-hmm. number one film. Box office, period. Um, and it's still now the sixth highest grossing rom-com of all time. That's crazy. You know, we're in New York right now, and you know, I've been, this is now year 10 for me. Mm-hmm. Notice that like certain key cultural areas of the city, like the West Village, East Village, St. Mark's area, Lower East Side, a lot of these restaurant and bar concepts mm-hmm. were converting from being just super French or Italian inspired to like really digging deep into like regional Chinese cuisine, Hmm. um, Southeast Asian culture, like Filipino food was starting to get there, but Mm -hmm. really like awesome Thai Vietnamese restaurants were were opening up. And these chef restaurateurs, they were blowing up on Instagram. They were getting crazy profiles in New York Magazine, The New Yorker. And like when you went to these restaurants, this is also like, I guess this was the second generation after like David Chang's empire build in 2011. But like, when you went into these restaurants, it wasn't just Asians or Asian Americans yeah. in there. It was like a bigger mix a of, folks. of folks. And so like that started planting the idea in my head of like, hey, is there something I could lend to this conversation? Mm. I've had an, I don't even know if it was interesting, but it was, maybe this, again, where like that level of confidence comes in where it's like, I have something to contribute yeah, to. Right, the, I have to, something that I want to, I see an opportunity here. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And also at the time at our office, at the Bombfell offices, we had all of this sparkling water of different flavors. I mean, it was like it was like the summer of Lacroix. Oh my goodness! And bubbly and all these other brands, but they were all the same exact flavors. Oh yeah, everybody was just one to one, same profile, just different logo. Yep. <laughs> and I just felt like there's got to be something here that we can at least like play around with. Yeah. And so the goal was, I mean, actually, a lot of the inspiration was going into, let's say, like a Momofuku mm-hmm. restaurant or one of these other restaurants. And you know, especially in a place like this that's super competitive, there's a lot of care given for sure to the food menu, but even a lot of these places also attention given to the drink menu. Of so course. what wines you're the putting pairing, on, right? cocktails, all that jazz. But then you got to the soft drink section and it was Coke, Sprite, and in some of these restaurants, specifically San Pellegrino. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why is there nothing here that like hits that? And like, I don't know that I had I mean, sure, I thought there was an aspiration that, you know, you could build a brand that was global, and I think the aspirations have grown with attraction. Yep, of course. Um, But I always did have this idea that, like, if I could just wedge ourselves in Mm -hmm. with this community, it is, like, super supportive, super collaborative. You know, if we could just, like, cultivate and support this community and and give this community, like, a a beverage option that was interesting, Mm -hmm. okay, we can start there. And and, And we can go from there, right? you got to have your your footing, your foundation. Your tribe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you know how to make soda? Zero. I had zero <laughs> knowledge. Um, and like even some of the earliest uh, steps in the process are like laughable at this point. So what I did was, I was like, at that point, I knew absolutely nothing. So my first thought was, okay, let me just to even produce samples. I'm like going to treat this the way that someone might brew beer at home. Okay. So I figured, okay, well, brewing beer is actually much more complex yeah. than making, you know, sparkling water with a little bit of juice inside. So that's been done before. So this has to be <laughs> this a lot, has to, this has to be, has to be somewhere. It's funny, even for me being an engineer, 
I learned through that process that I shouldn't be touching things. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, I tried to basically home bottle my own versions of the beverage and it went pretty terribly. When we return, Sandro goes all in and starts to crack the seal. What's up, Claim of Stories fam? If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've heard of Vistaprint, right? I mean, we've been doing a lot of incredible work together to inspire entrepreneurs of color, so we hope you're paying attention. Now, when it comes to printing things, and I mean just about anything for your business, whether it's stickers, t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, and even snapback hats, Vistaprint's got you. They print just about everything. So as you look for ways to help your small business stand out, think Vistaprint. The printabilities are endless at vistaprint.com. Hey, it's Bima. Welcome back to the Claim of Stories podcast. So Sandro is all in on his new business and starts reaching out to different people in the beverage industry for advice and guidance. So I just started cold DMing folks and cold emailing and being like, hey, I have this idea for a brand that I'm trying to launch. I'm trying to figure out these two or three things. Yeah. Could you point me in the right direction? How responsible, folks? Remarkably. And actually, the well, one thing, the food and beverage industry, I, I grew to learn, insanely collaborative. Everyone wants to help each other out. The second part, though, I think is just like a tip that I've given to every founder, which is like, come to the table with something, right? Mm. Like, show that you've done some research. And then for me, like, that's why a big part was like, I need help with these one, two, or three things. Right. Can you point me in the right direction? Yeah. It shows that I've done my homework and that all you need to do is like, point me there. You don't have to spend crazy amount of time. Yeah, no, I'm not asking you to build it for me. I'm literally like, I have this, these are the gaps. Exactly. Yeah. And just kind of like build and level up from there. Right, right. So you're getting into this, you're figuring out, you know, some of these gaps that you don't know. Um, and then at what point do you start kind of feeling confident in what you're, you're building and like, what are the flavors that are like people are responding to? Like what's happening? Yeah, I think, I mean, in general, and I don't know for any entrepreneur that you ever feel like <laughs> confident enough to take the leap. Eventually you just kind of have to do it. The way that I started trying to build up some wins and they teach you this in like, I don't know, food and beverage 101 mm -hmm. is once you make the product, like, Get out there in the market. Mm. If you're going to put it on a grocery store shelf, do demos. Like literally pour the product out, wow. talk to customers, get their feedback. And fortunately, from the first few demos that we did in our first few stores, like it turned. So we would pour it, they'd sip it, and they're like, I want to buy it. I want to have it with my meal. Yeah. And so like getting those initial reps, like honestly, for me, really, again, I don't know if it's a confidence thing, but it's like seeing someone pay for a product that I created it's like the greatest feeling in the it world never gets old. It, it never gets old <laughs> and it's just like okay if you're willing to pay for this let's keep going yeah right and so but like to your point like i mean there's been so many different checkpoints but like i think like the very first one would have been at those stores hmm. and we so cool that it was selling when i was there yeah. but better it was selling when i wasn't when it there. wasn't there because then it started to have a recurring, like, I actually like this, I want to get it again. Right. Or then word of mouth started to spread because somebody told someone. Exactly. Right? And that's what you ultimately want. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or especially in that stage, which is so early, um, one of the biggest things that I think I've learned is 
the packaging just mad. It's, it's, yeah, I was going to ask so you about much. that, right? It's like, especially in beverage, you like everything from, you know, soda to beer to wine, like the labels matters. are incredibly like important and it matters, particularly in this particular space, non-alcoholic beverage, they're really fun. You're a fan of storytelling. What did you want to communicate when you thought about the brand you wanted to create and what that IP would look like in a packaging form? Yeah, I mean, this is also at a time when I felt like, and I love the brand, I love the coffee, I love everything, I mean, I do love everything about it, but the world of brands had gone, especially in like the beverage or cafe world, had just all become blue bottle or all <laughs> derivative of it, which again is awesome and yeah. I absolutely love it. But like what that created for me, I thought was an opportunity to zag the other way. Hmm. A lot of brands at the time, it was just like, white backdrops, yep. certain, you know, like the kind of like lettering you put on those boards, I don't know, like white tile. Yeah. And I was just like, and I don't, succulents. Yeah. And I was just like, we're not doing, like we are not we're, not, doing we're not doing that. It's like, it's cool, it works for a lot of brands, but like, if we're gonna stand out, let's stand out another way. Absolutely. I talked about Momofuku before, mm. it was a big one for me. I loved the loudness and vivacity that it had mm. as a brand. And it was a brand that again, also to me, like it bridged cultures. Mm. People wanted to go there. Yes, both Asian Americans, but also not. Yeah. So like that was one of them. And then I'll say like part of the, the inspiration also was like a Filipino jeepney, which <laughs> if anyone's ever seen before, it's like a big truck, but that's just plastered with all these different decals and colors and all that stuff. <laughs> um, and so I wanted it to have a level of like, yeah, sure, Southeast Asian Yeah, you flair. wanted some cultural significance in right. there. Like if you knew, you knew. <laughs> but also, if you knew, you knew, I wanted to give that and also, if you didn't know, totally fine. Totally fine too. Right, and so that's why we have like you know the big fruit illustrations on the front. We also learned through our customer demos that like people wanted to, to know that the drink had real fruit, no added sugar. So like we actually, the first iteration of our bottles did not have that, but our cans now all say oh, because that was directly from customer conversations. Wow. So you were implementing that feedback constantly. Yeah, and that's why it's like I think it's important in the early days to like be out there because like we were able to like speak the language that our customers were already speaking to us. Mm -hmm. And so like being able to mirror that is great because now, I mean, we're going through some like packaging tweaks. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Like it takes, takes a lot of time. It takes a, a lot, lot of time. energy. Yeah. My wife has a, a plant-based ice cream company and the pints and the packaging. She tells me all the time. Cause I'm like, well, you, should, you should do this. And she's like, you have no idea. <laughs> 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 you know, when it comes to the flavors, what were some of the flavors that you felt you wanted to, you know, bring to the market? Yeah, I mean, the core three were really it. And on it, so we have a, a lychee, an Alfonso mango, and a calamansi, which is a Filipino lime that's mm -hmm. kind of like a hybrid of a lime and a tangerine, if you wow. will, in one fruit. So me, like the best version of a citrus fruit you could like literally ever find. Because <laughs> it's got like the tartness, but also rounds out with sweetness. So yep. it's like awesome. So I'll say like the launch was a couple things. I wanted to have enough flavors that kind of hit different palettes. Mm -hmm. So the mango is super sweet, is like our sweetest skew, although it's only four grams of sugar. Our lychee's got some like floral notes to it. And then the, the calamansi's got the tart. And I also, a big thing for me was trying to, and I'll never be able to like represent all of Asia in a product line, yeah. but try to hit East Asian demographic, mm -hmm. Southeast Asian and the South Asian like, you know, groups. Because the, the goal of this was to build a brand that bridged all of these cultures, of ideally. Yep. And so that was, I mean, they are indeed some other ones, but they just like, like I did like a tamarind one earlier and it tasted fine, but 
didn't look very visually appealing. Um, <laughs> that part is important. <laughs> right. And so uh, ultimately, though, like I actually kind of landed on these three in the beginning and was like, this is what this we're is going what we're with. And fortunately, it kind of it worked. worked out. <laughs> At this point, how much time are you spending on your business while also balancing your day job? Yeah, so fortunately, the R&D process, I mean, it has a lot of starts and stops. Mm-hmm. You can do stuff at night or, you know, maybe take a couple calls during lunch and then you're waiting again for several for weeks for, yep. for something. Yep. So yep. the earliest stages of R&D, you know, that was about like a year. Mm-hmm. And literally for the first like nine months, six to nine months of that process, I actually didn't find it that super disruptive. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, yep. towards the end, like, yeah. And I also, you know, we were going through some downsizing at the company. And it was a perfect time for me to, frankly, it was a perfect time for me to exit. Wow. So, yeah, a lot of things just kind of came together. fell into place and was like, this is the right time. From a financial standpoint, how are you then going to think about supporting yourself? And you still have responsibility and stuff like that. And then were you, what type of help were you receiving in your business? Like, did you have any employees yet or anything like that? Yeah. So the beginning of it was entirely self-financed. My savings from being a nuclear engineer, working in tech, working in banking, I mean, all told, over the course of like 12 to 18 months, like over $100,000. So you really believed in this? I grew to learn that this business was gonna need at minimum that, and I actually have grown to learn since that that is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. To building a, <laughs> what, a, what's your aspiration? a big brand, yeah. And it wasn't all at once, so that maybe made it a little bit easier, or maybe a little more sticker shock when I looked yeah. at the final tab, and I was like, oh my God, I've actually spent this much. But you know, the way I think about it was, it wasn't all at once. And so it was trying to figure out, you know, with 10K, what can I prove out? Yes. Like, and if I can prove that out, cool, we'll put a bit more money in and go. And that's why it was over the course of like a year to 18 months mm-hmm. was because like at each step of the process, I was kind of evaluating, okay, where does it make most sense to, put to invest more money? Right, to get that return. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, that was that. Yeah. Did not have any employees. I ended up learning. I'd say most parts of the early part of the business, myself, manufacturing, sales, marketing, ops, finance. And I think it was important. Like for where we're at right now, I think the conversations I'm able to have, we do now have a team of 17 mm-hmm. um, employees. And yeah, I have three directors who yep. know what they're doing in their roles <laughs> way better than I do, but I can have conversations with them and kind of guide them or challenge them on certain things. Right. Because you have a perspective. Right, yep. right. And now though, it's getting to a point where they're the one challenging me. Where it's like, <laughs> hey man, that's how it may have been done, you know, two, two and a half yeah. years ago, but that's not we're how not we there. do it anymore. We got a different volume. We're, 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 we're at a different level now. Like get up, get on board with this. Yeah, totally. I, I hear you. And it's, and it's part of like trusting your team too, yes. right? So you eventually, you're out, you're in full time, you're building it, you're getting different accounts, you're going and doing demos, mom and pops, and you're seeing this momentum. 2020 happens, yep. pandemic. What does that do to your budding business? It actually accelerates it. <laughs> so we fortunately, you know, we were in some, you know, it obviously shut off our whole wholesale business. Yeah. And we were, yeah, it was very door-to-door, mom and pop, which, you know, we felt terribly for those stores that had to kind of shut down during that time. But what it did for us was open up our direct-to-consumer business in a pretty, like, aggressive way. Wow. I call it luck that February 20th, mm-hmm. 2020, yep. I had just finally stopped packing my own orders in my apartment <laughs> and moved it to a warehouse. Wow. And that worked out great because literally March, April, we saw, I think, 600 to 700% growth. And nice. I, I literally couldn't have packed all those orders myself. 
And so it was good that we had a whole system set yeah. up there because once the world shut down, people were looking for things to buy. Sometimes people forget. Hmm. At this period of time, people didn't even know, at least in this area of the country, uh, especially in New York because we were hit so hard, um, you didn't know whether you could go to the grocery store safely. And so buying groceries through Amazon or Instacart mm -hmm. or whatnot was actually a bit of like a public safety concern. Yeah. And at the time also, Amazon, Instacart, like they had massive delays. Oh yeah. So in some ways, a lot of the emerging brands that had smaller operations hmm. set up, you were, you you were actually a massive advantage. Hmm. Um, and also you saw, you know, for folks who are like digital marketing minded, you know, a lot of you know, travel and luxury, like Facebook and Instagram advertising, those budgets went to zero. Yeah. And so an amazing opportunity for brands like us to kind of hop in and acquire new customers at a way cheaper rate than you could have otherwise. So obviously a lot of bad stuff happened, but you know, we were able to kind of make some lemonade. Make some good out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah get some good out of it. <laughs> so that's happening. And then I had to snoop quite a bit, <laughs> obviously. But one of the things I thought was interesting was you turned down the opportunity to go on Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. Most entrepreneurs, small business owners are like, gotta go, gotta pitch, gotta, you know, some actually want to do business and some want the publicity, whatever. Sure. Why'd you turn that down? Had to. Hmm. So definitely had that weighing on my mind too, of like, well, regardless of whether you get a deal, yeah, there's stories today about how like people still see the spikes whenever their episode gets syndicated on CNBC or, or, or what have you. This was, act we got the nod in the summer of 2020 right as we were closing our first round of financing mm -hmm. and as we were scaling. <laughs> and so because I was still the only employee at the company, I literally would have had to shut down for about three weeks. Oh, wow. Because the way that I think Shark Tank generally goes, and especially during COVID, they flew you out to LA. Well, first off, you had to dedicate a decent amount of budget to like building a set oh. that was custom for Shark so Tank. So you have to build that. That's on you. Yeah, that's wow. that you're making that bet as a as an entrepreneur, as an owner, that like this is going to be worth it. You want to present yourself well in front of the sharks and in front of America, right? right? Right. So first off, it's okay. Instead of growing the business, I now have to go and contract out, you know, a bit like a pretty probably pretty expensive yeah, build. It's a to, whole separate thing to do this. A Shark Tank pitch is incredibly different from that of uh, a general investor hmm. pitch. And at the time, what they had you do was they flew you out and then you literally couldn't leave your room. They brought you your food. You were isolated for, I think it was like two weeks. They'd literally bring you out just to film. You'd have to be in your own separate area. You couldn't interact with the sharks. Like they had their own thing because you know, the crew had their own thing also because everyone was like, yeah. Everybody was panicking. Everyone yeah. was panicking. When I evaluated it, I was just like, I could do that. That actually felt riskier than like, okay, I actually have sales. Fall of that year, so September of 2020, we were launching in 50 Whole Foods stores wow. um, in the New York tri-state area. I was like, I just can't. I we just have, can't. We, I actually have something that's working here. I don't, right. this right now is not the time. Right. And I was like, maybe in the future when I have a team, mm -hmm. we can go back and do it. And I, maybe now, actually, I'd be open to it. Yeah. Very different terms, different valuations. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, it's a little different now. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, at the time, I just literally couldn't. We were yeah. growing too fast. Yeah, yeah. So in that decision to not do that, you got Whole Foods in the pipeline. Did you do any pitching in between then to raise investment to fulfill those orders, or how'd you go about that? Yeah, so at the time that the Shark Tank offer came, we were growing like 600% in a month. 
and also got the Whole Foods authorization. So even during COVID, which is the pandemic, it was a terrible time, but like with those metrics, like folks were still like, okay, we can like we can get behind this. Yeah. And so we, we raised about $1.3 million at that time. And so that allowed me to start funding bigger production runs, made my first two hires. <laughs> so finally got some traction and yeah. stuff off, and of some just, support. Yeah. off of just my plate. <laughs> um, and so that's why the Shark Tank thing just didn't align there. But yeah, like that summer was a big one for us and being able to actually take in some outside capital. How would you advise other entrepreneurs who are trying to maybe make decisions like that, right? Between like an opportunity like Shark Tank and not doing that um, because of what you feel is, is gonna be better for your business, but they may have like, you know, other people in their ear. How would you advise them to navigate a situation like that? I think for me, the first thing, it's funny, it actually starts to me like a couple steps before that, which is, is your product good? Are people mm. buying it? Mm. If so, that opens up opportunities where a thing like a Shark Tank could actually be viable. But like, you know, and I think about this with any level of PR, mm -hmm. um, we have a couple of celebrities who are invested into the brand. Mm -hmm. That stuff can only amplify a product that's- working. Already good. <laughs> it won't make a bad product good. Right. Um, and so that's like literally the first thing that I would say to a founder is like, do you have stats that are showing that people like this? And if so, okay, now let's have that chat. It's really case by case. And I would actually say I was in a rare scenario where I had to turn it down. I think for most founders, like if I didn't have that situation, I probably would have gone. So um, it, we just happened to fall into a situation where we couldn't. And I guess other things I would say there are like, there is a financial and time consideration. Also, I think there's a, it's either one in three or one in two chance of, it, of your segment actually airing. Oh, and so, so it's not even guaranteed you record it. It's not, it's not guaranteed. And I think even if you get funded, hmm. it's still not guaranteed you air. Wow. And so like there is that level of, I would say, risk. Risk, in it. for sure. And look, the payoff is there. And I think ultimately most folks who do the calculus are like, no, the opportunity makes sense to, to pursue it. Mm -hmm. But it is important to know that like there are certain things out there that it, it doesn't look as easy as it looks on TV. <laughs> <laughs> it gets a little bit Hollywood, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about kind of the product side. When you think about your brand and what your brand represents, how do you hope to celebrate Asian culture? Yeah, I mean, the, our stated mission, our vision is to bridge cultures by connecting people to real flavors. Mm -hmm. And it's both a celebration to me within the broader Asian American community and our various, you know, mm -hmm. subgroups, and also the celebration of like the East and West bridging <laughs> together in a more, I don't know, globalized world and one where, yeah, like we're talking about various, you know, films like Crazy oh, Rich Asians yeah, yeah, or yeah. TV shows like right. Squid Game. I mean, you or, even had a partnership or a collaboration with Marvel, right? Exactly. Like, <laughs> yep. For Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten yeah. Rings. And it's like, you know, a lot of folks in, when, when you're creating products and how I think about the brand is like, we want to be there for those moments. Mm. That's like, I don't know, like the essence of life, I guess, is like <laughs> having these kinds of moments of celebration. And like, we want to be, you know, we want our brand to be part of those moments. Mm. And also like, those moments are also indicative of a larger movement mm. that's been happening over the last decade, couple decades or so. And so that's how we see ourselves is yeah. how do we fit into folks' lives mm. and in these moments that they have. I love that, I love that. July, right, you celebrated three years. Yes. It seems like that time has kind of flown by. It's unbelievable. <laughs> What's been the most significant thing that sticks out in your mind about this journey thus far as you reflect? Yeah. One is just the idea that like when you start it, and I still feel this way, mm -hmm. 
if you told me in the beginning that we'd have a year three, yeah. it's like, oh my God, that's amazing. That means we're actually, I'm actually getting, getting to wake up every day <laughs> and do something that I have a lot of like passion and conviction right. over. And that, yeah, at a very human level, gives me purpose yeah. every day. Like it's, I'm very grateful for what the brand has become and what our community has allowed me to do because like, I feel like I'm getting to be the person I might like want to be, you know, yeah. like, like, that sense of purpose for anyone um, just unlocks, I think the best in folks. And I think conversely, you know, that's why folks who have, you know, jobs where they're not empowered, it can really take a toll on their, I don't know, mental health or just like how they feel about life. Of so I feel very fortunate there. A really interesting moment came also during that time, actually not in July, but more like about a month ago mm -hmm. in August. And we had a, a literally a, a day long, what we call like the war room. Mm -hmm. uh, myself, our directors and our two sales advisors who have experience, you know, kind of building up the sales teams at Vitamin Water, Pirate's Booty, some like, you know, big, big, some brand. big, big brands. And the work that our team had done in advance of that, I got to the end of the meeting and it was like, wow, we still have to execute on this plan, <laughs> but we actually have a plan for the rest of 2022, all of 2023. <laughs> and like, I'm starting to think a little bit about 2024, 24. maybe even 25. Right, to you to ahead. Right, and I'm like, we can't get ahead of ourselves here, but it definitely hit me of like, wow, being able to think that far <laughs> is like, a privilege I don't oh, take yeah. I don't take lightly and also a um a milestone in yeah. my journey as an entrepreneur that I also don't take it for granted. opportunity to be strategic yep right exactly. you get to not be reactive you get to be on the offense yep hmm. we still have to react to a lot yes. as, a, yeah. as, a, as a smaller team <laughs> but, yes. <laughs> but it does allow it does allow for a little bit more of that hmm. again like I think about the journey that we've been on the, like what our community has done to like lift our brand up and I'm like that's pretty cool. That is absolutely really cool. So recently, it was announced that you raised $10 million, Series A. On top of that, you're in Whole Foods, Sprouts, Safeway. Yep. I know you just had your, your first big team off-site, which, <laughs> which is really cool, both coasts. You reflect on the journey thus far, and you think about someone coming up, right? That another young Filipino cat that wants to create a product. What advice would you give them along this journey? Yeah, I mean, first thing is, hey, it's a good thing now, you know, our raise, and you know, we have other friends in the space as well. I think about brands like Fly by Jing, mm. Omsom, Win Coffee Supply. There's like a couple of folks who, Boxu, some folks who have a similar thesis. And first thing is, should be a, hopefully a little easier because there's actually <laughs> some comparable data. Right, there you can like show like, that, hey, we're not the only ones. Right, like, like we didn't have like our first fundraise was. I mean, there's a whole conversation there too about like who writes the checks, mm. but like really having to convince people that, oh, like the Asian thing is a thing. It's and a not, thing. And not just among Asian people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so fortunately, some of that, a lot of that education has been taking place now over the last few years, which is awesome. Yeah. What would I tell another Filipino entrepreneur? I, I mean, I, the biggest thing that I've gotten for myself is like your personal experience, your lived experience, if you're trying to create a business and I'm thinking about this from like a, a pure business perspective, but it's like, if you can properly tap into that, there is value in that, in mm. whatever you're doing. Like I think a lot of you know, the world that I've gotten to recently live in is brand building, storytelling, but then also again with these partnerships with you know with Marvel, with Pixar. Mm. We have another one coming up in October that hey. I can't I can't say yet. <laughs> but like the the power of effective storytelling and the uniqueness of mm. our stories is valuable yes. right now. People want to see that, people want to hear that, people want to read about that, people want to buy that. Yes. 
And so like, and I think it happens a lot with songwriters mm. or stand-up comedians. Mm -hmm. Like their things are just like literally right every single day. Yeah. You know, 99 out of the 100 things could be terrible, but like the one thing could be, could like smash. And like, and you need to get through that 99 yep. to get to the one. Yep. And in a similar way, I would, that's what I would say, I mean, hmm. to most founders, but I think specifically, and I'll just kind of broaden that out to like founders of color, like yep. our stories, our voices, like people want it now. We're seeing it now with our program at Target. You know, there's specifically programs for diverse suppliers. Yes. And commitments, like there's business commitments. Correct, correct. So folks need to fill that gap and you could look around, hmm. but like ultimately, like if you have the slightest inkling it could be you, but that's already like a pretty big first step of like yeah. confidence or <laughs> yeah, just like your belief in your own abilities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was Sandro Rocco, founder of Sanzo Sparkling Water. Find out more about Sandro and get access to all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review us. Stay up to date with our latest news following us on Instagram at Claim of Stories, or you can reach out with a message at hello at claimastories.com. Our show this week is produced by BJ Fergozo, Pervy Patel, Natalie Yazzie, Jericho Trim, and the team over at DB Podcasts. Original music provided by Adrian and Anaya, and vocals provided by Rosella. Special thanks to Jordan Dinwiddie, Cena Clark, Clint Blaine, and Damian Mitchell. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to the Claim of Stories podcast, powered by Vista.